Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, David Allison. David is the founder of the Value Graphics Project. Now, that won't mean anything to you, but it will as we get to speak. He spends his time researching, writing, engaging with, speaking about human behavior. And what he's really looking to understand and teach us today is around our blind spots. What are the things that things like demographic labeling do in terms of filtering our perception against what's real? His position is that we're far more similar than many of us would like to believe. So I really want to explore that because that has huge ramifications for sales, for negotiation, for dealing with conflict or misunderstanding. And looking at how people are attached to inherited and rented views and perspectives and how that's the road to hell. Again, often we have a script in our heads that tells us the way the world is, but it's typically the way the um, the world we see ourselves rather than how the world really is. So we're going to be tackling questions about whether you're on autopilot. How are you really looking at the world? Why, Why do you think your customers are really your customers? And what the hell are you going to do with all of that data that you've been collecting? So, David, welcome. Thanks for having me over. What a great introduction. Nice place you've got here. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, I I tend to find that talent creates and genius steals. So without any taking the credit, that came through our green room conversation. So planning this out, it does happen a little bit more than I let on sometimes. But I'm really curious, how did you come to the conclusions uh, that you have? What was the journey that you went through? Oh, interesting. It's a great, the origin story will begin at the beginning. So I had a marketing and advertising firm for a very, very long time. And our focus was helping wealthy real estate developers build big giant condo towers and resort communities and master plan communities all over the world. And every single time we got started with a project, like any business, not just real estate, the first thing you do is sit down and talk about who, who are we doing this for? What's the target audience? What are they all about? And inevitably, we would get some description of my, my code word for all of those because of the time period I was working in was uh, there's always wealthy baby boomers who I call Bob and Sally. So Bob and Sally were always the target audience. And everybody thought they had some kind of super unique little version of Bob and Sally that, that was their particular target audience. But basically, it was Bob's and Sally's. So then here's the cool thing about the real estate world. You take this description of Bob and Sally, you take a million dollars from your client and you run around, spend it all. And two years later, you're done. And you get to go walk into a room and meet the people you attracted. And I would stand there with a shrimp on a toothpick and a glass of cheap cava in the other hand. And I would uh, look around the room and go, wow, there's about 10, maybe 15% of these people are Bob and Sally. Who the fuck are all these other people? What are they doing here? I didn't talk to them. I didn't buy media for them. They just all showed up here for some reason. Thank God it sold out. Okay, let's go and do another one. And another one, another one, another one. That's That was my life for decades. And so when I sold my company about six years ago now, I thought I'd see if I could figure that out. Who were those, let's say, 85, 90% of the people in the room who I hadn't invited to come? So I started looking into fields of human behavior and you look at uh, neurology, psychology, sociology, and I can go into a long diatribe around all of these different ways of 
thinking about why people do what they do. How do people make the decisions? How did those people decide to be in that room when I did not send them an invitation? But the short version of the story is that scientists and the behavioral sciences have been studying this for decades all over the world, smartest, smartest scientists in the world. And they've all come up with the exact same conclusion, which can be summarized very simply in one sentence. What we value determines everything we do, whether we know it or not, consciously or subconsciously, our values drive every, not some, every single decision, behavior, and emotion that every human has 24-7, 365 across the entire planet Earth. So I thought, that's cool. As a marketing and uh, sales and strategy brain, I could use that. But I went looking for a tool to figure out how to apply that truth to an entire target audience, and there wasn't one. You can't say for target audience X in Belgium, what values do I need to use to drive the behaviors, decisions, and emotions that I'm looking for? So I thought, okay, well, this is that classic uh, situation. I'm just going to have to build one. And that's what we did. We launched the Value Graphics Project about five years ago. We now have the world's first record of what everybody on the planet values and cares about. It's been 600,000 surveys that we've launched and analyzed in 152 languages. And we're now accurate in 180 countries around the world with more accuracy than you need for a Harvard PhD. And what we can do with this is pretty fun. For any target audience, we can say, here's the things they care about most that they share in common. So as a marketer, a salesperson, just talk to them about that. Don't worry about the stuff you think is important. Don't worry about the stuff that the industry says are the key drivers for decision-making. Just talk to them about what they care about and they'll come running. So my pal Martin Lucas has approached the problem from a very similar angle because uh, his frustration was that all these ologies all asked the same question, but never, none of them really came up with the answer. Who are we? And what drives us? If you if you understand that at an individual level, that's incredibly potent. So uh, I'm curious that there is obviously the Cambridge Analytica sort of association. With it. <laughs> you I, said it. You said it out loud. I know. Oh I know. I've, I've, I've committed a cardinal sin in AI. The reality is that this stuff can be used well and it can be used poorly. So when you're using it well. I'm really curious to understand what the values filters are that you recommend your clients to use in order to ensure that they're turning up with the right intent. Well, we baked a lot of, you're basically asking an ethics question. Yeah. Uh, we, bake, we, we baked a lot of the ethical stuff right into the way we built this data set and the way we extrapolate data from the data set for our clients. If we look at the C word, Cambridge Analytica, what they did, in short, was uh, run around stealing everybody's data off their social media pages without telling them, keeping it very accurately registered so that they could then turn around and use that information on specific people. So, Marcus, we know that you love bicycles. So we're going to frame everything we want you to do up in terms of how it's going to be amazing for bicycles and feed that back to you, which is an unfair advantage. You don't know that we know that you like bicycles. And 
framing up some political or, or, or economic issue around how it's going to impact your ability to bicycle is just unfair. It's, it's, in fact, the UK government at one point classified Cambridge Analytica as weapons grade communications. I think that's a scary and yeah. um, telling term. So what we did is very similar in some respects. We went and asked people if we could have some information and what a concept instead of just stealing it. We asked them, we told them what we're using it for. We told them how we're going to use it over and over again. We've anonymized it. So no matter how much money some corrupt politician throws at me, I can't possibly tell him where, who said what at what point. So the data can't be traced back. And finally, the bow on this package is that everybody who participated in the 600,000 surveys in our data set uh, got a secret code and an email that they can use. And they send that code to us at any point and we'll remove all their data from the database. So you can opt out on a whim anytime you want. All fantastic. But you're answering the question how you've handled it. I'm really oh. curious how, how your customers and how you're educating your customers uh, to behave with the correct intent. Because one of the fundamental premises that I have is that whenever a buyer is engaging with a seller, they deserve to feel safe. And that's been lost and I'm fighting a very noisy one-man crusade, well, a few-person crusade, to make sales a force for good. I see. Yes, the answer to that question is slightly different. First off, again, this is part of it that's in our control. We work with our clients on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So we say no to politics. We say no to cigarettes. We say no to guns. We say no to all the, the list of things that could possibly be nefarious. And then the kind of data that we supply creates a north star for an organization to point themselves towards the execution of the manifestation of their strategies their tactics the ideas the messages the branding the positioning whatever it is they're using this for that's largely going to just be a, a product and a, a result of knowing that the people you're trying to engage with for example find their family to be the most motivating thing in their lives now if a company we're working with knows that family is the magic, the magic button they need to push, and they find a way to be nefarious and terrible about that, then we've done a really bad job of figuring out who we should be working with. I think, I think inherent in your question is perhaps some assumption that the kind of data we provide could be used in nefarious ways. I know that collecting data is such a contentious subject. And understanding at a, at a really granular cellular level how people are influenced and motivated is incredibly potent. That is weapons-grade communication technology. And most people don't use it well. So there's no judgment uh, one way or the other. But what, I, what I'm really curious about is how we ensure that people don't resent it. Because over time... I had a look in my spam folder a couple of days ago because since uh, moving to the new iOS, everything's gone up tits up. And I looked in my spam folder and what was really interesting was the number of unsolicited emails from companies trying to sell me stuff about conversations that I have had with my wife or my kids, that creepiness. And there, yeah. I'm delighted that I have an overzealous spam filter. Um, sure. because 
I never got to see any of that. And it's yeah, sure. never been unsold. So you're you're very you're you're talking about a very specific piece of information. So I just bought a little cottage up the coast, and I remember sitting when we first bought it on two lawn chairs with an upside down cardboard box as a coffee table and starting to talk about what we were going to buy. And before you know it, popping up all over my social feeds was stuff about mattresses and sofas and lamps and all these things (laughs) that felt a little intrusive. The data that we're providing isn't that specific. It's very directional. So what you might notice in your spam filter, for example, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I'm just looking at my list of possible values. Uh, there's only 56, which is kind of a cool squirrel moment here. Well, there's let, only 56 values. Pause. David, let's just pause for a moment. If you're listening and you can, go on online and go to Value Graphics. That's V-A-L-U-E-G-R-A-P-H-I-C-S dot online forward slash global, G-L-O-B-A-L. So the bottom is um, to the left and the top of the slash is to the right for anyone doubting that that's a forward slash. Okay. Let me, let me do my rest, my, my, my best radio DJ voice. So that's valuegraphics.online forward slash global. That's where you need to go. Much better. Uh, so Alex, edit me out. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me just, I'm just going to throw something out here. I'm going to say that um, based on the little bit that I, that I know about you, that, I'm going to guess that loyalty is a really important value to you. It's a pretty safe bet. It's up near the top of the list of things that are important to a lot of people in, in the world. And so is, I'm going to choose another one that will just help me tell my story here, belonging. Belonging is a value that motivates and drives people who want to fit in and want to feel like they're part of something bigger than just themselves. It's one of the most popular values in every region of the world. So let's say that what I know about you is belonging and loyalty. And in your inbox, instead of specific messages about mattresses and whatever it is you might've been talking about, although that was me, I'm mixing up our little examples, but uh, let's say that in your, in your inbox, there's all this very specific stuff, which is quite alarming, but there was just this unnoticeable overarching thematic that started to emerge where things were positioned in a way that talked to you about fitting in and being part of something bigger, whether we're talking to you about coffee cups or cameras, that there was, there was a, a theme that was emerging in the way people were talking to you that just said, you know what, we have an amazing loyal following and we reward our followers because we know we can't get anywhere without them. And in fact, we think of our followers as and our and our fans and our customers as a as a huge community of people and we all belong and help each other out in all kinds of ways as a human being now i'm using a really crappy like off the cuff example here you're going to read that and it's just going to resonate deeply with the way you see the world you're not going to pick that out and go wait a minute somehow these folks have figured out that i'm all about loyalty and belonging, because you probably don't even think about yourself that way. But, you know, when prompted, you're not going to sit back and go, I'm a loyal person who's very motivated by belongingness. That's just not the way we see ourselves. But it is the way we behave in the world. And it is for someone, this fictitious person that I've just been describing, those are the drivers behind. It's what they're chasing. They wake up in the morning and they're out there chasing ways to feel more like they belong and more like they're 
loyalty is reciprocated with the organizations and products and brands and services that they choose to patronize. When people are considering purchases or considering an important decision, what are the processes they go through of filtering information? Um, oh, great question. So I'll stick with that then. <laughs> yeah, no, great question. This lets me go back and talk about some of the science stuff that we were, that kind of was the root of what we did and why we did it. So if we, if we look at neurology, neuroscience, if you talk to any neuroscientist who knows what they're doing, they'll tell you that the prefrontal cortex of your brain, which we've all heard, we've all heard referred to as the CEO of your brain. The prefrontal cortex of your brain is responsible for determining everything that you do. All your decisions, behaviors, run away from this, run towards that, put this down, feel happy, feel sad. It all starts with your prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex's job as the CEO of your brain is to look at all the incoming data. There's no other word for it. All the sights and sounds and smells, everything you interact with in the course of the day goes into your prefrontal cortex. And like a good CEO, it sort of considers all of the available data and then says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go chase that thing and we're going to scream and run away from that thing over there. Now your prefrontal cortex only uses one, one set of filters to make all those decisions and then boss every other part of you around. And that's your values, which if we take this out of the world of science and just think about it for a moment, it makes perfect sense. If family is the most important thing in your life, something comes along, it's going to be good for your family. You want more of that. If something comes along that might be bad for your family, you're going to run away from that. It's a fairly common sense principle, but it is rooted in neurology and our biological responses as humans to the world that we're walking through. When you look at psychology, psychologists study all kinds of different ways that people interact with the world around them. But one of the things they talk about, which is a great sort of illustration of how it ties back to the underpinnings of our work is, is a term called confirmation bias, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with. Basically a thing to avoid. You want to avoid confirmation bias if you're putting together a survey or a study because people won't give you an honest answer if you haven't been careful to avoid confirmation bias because humans can't help themselves but to say yes to things that they already agree with, they already think are important, that they already value. But if we could flip that around and know what the confirmation bias was in advance, now we're able to use it as a lure and it becomes goes in the bucket of uh, interesting tools that we could access if we knew how to do this. And then lastly, I'll touch on sociology, which I have to, because that's what we are. We're a sociological research and data company and sociologists study large groups of people. Why did these people go do this thing? And this other group of people go and do this other thing. Think about it in terms of politics. This group of people went and voted for that guy. These other people went and voted for this other guy. In retrospect, sociologists look at these situations and they do a little polling and poking around and then they go, oh, we got it. These guys went and did that thing because they cared about this stuff. These are what they valued. These are their values. And this other group reacted in entirely a different way because these are their values. So it's always done in retrospect, but now it doesn't have to be. Now we can know in advance of an event what the values of a large group of people will be so that we can't exactly predict what they're going to do but we can predict why they're going to do whatever they do next, which is a really big leap forward from where we've been to date. Very interesting. One of the companies I work with, White Rabbit, essentially 
is able to map populations and give them a shape and then to map the change over time in that population. So one use case is to develop an ICP, so an ideal customer profile or an ideal partner profile, then to run data through the ICP to identify those people who are most likely to be receptive to an approach by you at this point. So someone with a score of 50% or above, it's probably worth 30, 40, 50 attempts to contact them. But a lot of that is built upon psychographics. So I'm curious about how psychographics and value graphics are different. Sure. This is a common question. We talk about needing to think about your consumers, a group of people, a population with a stack of audience insights. A better metaphor is it's a three-legged stool. You need demographics, psychographics, and value graphics. And here's why. Demographics put a fence around a group of people tell you what they are. The problem with demographics, and this is another fascinating thing we've learned from this data set, is demographics don't tell you who people are. The idea that 18 to 24-year-olds are somehow all similar to each other because of the number of times they've traveled around a burning star on a rock makes no sense. It absolutely makes no sense. To say millennials are all like this or women are all like that just it, it, you just can't even support that from a pure logic perspective. And the, we'll get into this in a minute. The data that we've got around people all over the world proves that demographics are a lousy way, probably the worst way to try and think you understand people. Nevertheless, still important to put a fence around a group of people. Go back to my real estate days. If we're sending, we're selling a, a, on behalf of a, a client, we're selling a, a penthouse condominium on the top of a tower in downtown Gotham City, and it's three, $3 million. It's not going to sell to an 18-year-old woman who lives at a who works in a grocery store and didn't finish high school. We know this. But what we've been doing wrong is we've been saying the target audience for that $3 million penthouse is 50 to 70-year-old baby boomers, uh, empty nester couples moving from the suburbs. And therefore, they like marble and they want a huge kitchen and they love entertaining and all that other stuff. It's wrong. All we know about a group of people when we describe them demographically is what they are, not who they are. So it's still important, but it's just not. We've been using demographics to try and do poor demographics. We've been trying to make them do too many things. So we've got to just cut them some slack now. Mm-hmm. Stop using them for things they're no good at. Now, psychographics, you ask about. Psychographics are the second leg of the three legged stool. Psychographics are, oh my gosh, if you want to just like make your ears, like make, make your brain fall out your ears, just Google definition for psychographics and watch 5 billion different definitions. Some as long as three pages long. My favorite definition for psychographics is what's already happened. So it's a record of how people have behaved, what their emotions have been stuff that we can track the very fact of it being trackable. It means it's historical. If you can write it down, then it's already happened. We've been collecting so much psychographic data for the last 10 years. We're drowning in this stuff. We know every time our target audience blinks, what they look at, where they're walking, when they burp, what did they have for dinner? I mean, we know all kinds of crazy stuff about our people, but none of that tells you how they're going to behave tomorrow. And isn't that kind of the game of the game here? We we, we want to figure out how to get people to pay attention to us and talk to them about something and move the needle. And knowing what they did yesterday maybe establishes a pattern of some sort, 
And if all you want to do is propagate that pattern, then you're, you're probably good to go. But most of the time, a marketer is trying to get that pattern to change, change to my brand, consume more, buy from me, lease my thing. That's a change. And knowing what they did before doesn't help us understand how to get them to change. So now what have we got so far? Recap, three-legged stool. Sounded like it was going to be a short little story, didn't it? Only three legs. Demographics, psychographics, now value graphics. Value graphics. Value graphics are the third leg of the stool. Value graphics are all about activation. So if you know what all three of the legs of the stool are, the way I always talk about it is demographics describe, psychographics record, and value graphics activate because we know what people care about. If you have all three of those things, demographics to, to describe, psychographics to record, and value graphics to activate, you are now set up to close what people in the research world call the last mile. You've got all this data, and that last mile is always like, okay, cool, what do we do with this? The smaller you can make that last mile, the smaller the gap required from information to through inspiration out to execution, the better. Adding that piece about activating the group makes that last mile into maybe a last couple of yards. So I think I'm hearing here that values are intrinsically tied to motivation. So can we go into a little bit of exploration around that? Yeah, I mean, there's so many words we use as humans to talk about this stuff. It's uh, what drives us, what's our motivation, what's our, how do we engage, how do we um, captivate, how do we activate? Um, so you know, pick your favorite word. Nobody does anything unless it's going to be in the service of getting more of what they value or avoiding something that might harm what they value. And so you can wrap whatever words, call it motivation, if, if that's the word we want to use. Sure, we aren't motivated to do anything unless it comes from our values. Here's a really cool thing to think about. I mean, sometimes it's obvious. We're picking a house. And we're like, which one uh, family is really important to me, but so is my career. Ambition is really important to me. So this house has to say things about me that I want people to know so that I can look more successful. So yeah, family, got enough bedrooms, close to school is cool. But does it also say the right things about me? If ambition is important, then those two things will come into the decision. It's easier to see there. But let's say you're just standing in a grocery store and you got two cans of tomato soup in your hand. And what's going through your head is the dog needs to be let out and I hate my boss and uh, my shoes, I, I need to buy new shoes and, and this store smells funny and all these other things are happening inside my head. You're still going to make a decision about which can of soup to buy. You don't know you're doing it, but ask yourself this, how else could you make that decision except based on what you think is most important? It might be that one of them has a label on it that feels a little bit more upscale. You're not processing this in the front of your brain. This is way back in the dinosaur bits of your brain. You're looking at this and saying, this is the one for me. It's cheaper. Uh, well, if, if volume is the thing you're purchasing for, there's always a why. Why does that matter? You're making a trade-off at the back in your lizard brain because you need that money to do something that's more important for you. Every decision we make, large, small, conscious, subconscious, it always comes back to What's more important to me? And all we've done is take that pretty basic scientific truth proven out by all these other folks around the world and put some empirical data around it so that we can figure out what a group of people have in common. 
So now we can talk to them about that. So as I've grown older, I've come to the realization that it's much easier to find stuff in common and reach a consensus and an accord than it is to try and find points of difference and then trying to reach an accommodation that both sides can live with for a long time. So talk to me about how uh, we use value graphics in order to establish that common ground. Hmm. This is a lovely part of what we've done. And if you don't mind, I'm going to start by talking about how our current system is incredibly divisive and that value graphics is a way for us to at least partially ameliorate those issues. So the way we built this data set, it's, it's what's referred to as a random stratified statistically representative sample of the population of the world. So those 600,000 surveys aren't just like, hey, yay, we hit 600,000 and we're done. It's, we had to control who was responding to those surveys in a way so that we were building an exact replica, a miniature model of the earth based on age and geography and other factors. So we had this like our own little mini world. And that's why the data that comes out of there is so accurate. But what it also allows us to do is slice and dice it demographically just to see what's going on. So, for example, if we look at millennials, because we've spent 20 years now beating up on these poor millennials, like there's some sort of unicorn in the enchanted forest that we've never seen before. Everything had to be new and different for the millennials because they're a whole different sort of human that's never existed in history. Millennials only agree with each other. Remember the 56 core human values that we've got? Millennials only agree on those things 15% of the time. So every decision, behavior, and emotion that a millennial makes, at best, they're going to have 15% agreement. If you're going and chasing around trying to get millennials to do stuff because you think you know what millennials are all about, or some millennial whisperer is brought into the corporation to tell you about what they think, at best, you're going to get 15% ROI on anything that you try and do targeted at millennials. Now, to take that one step further, any single demographic label, gender, age, income, marital status, number of kids, we know we all know the list. If we average them out around the world, the agreement on those 56 values within each of those labels, those cohorts, is only 10.5%. Some are a couple points more, some are a little less. So roughly, we all within our cohorts agree with each other about, let's just round it off and say 10% of the time. To make it even worse. If we average everybody on the earth, how often does everybody on planet earth with the statistically representative sample we have agree with each other on those 56 values, regardless of demographics? We all agree with each other about 8% of the time, which means using a demographic label nets you about a 2% lift on just saying whatever the fuck you want to everybody and not worrying about segmentation or target audiences at all you get two percent better than just saying whatever comes crazy idea comes into your vice president of marketing's head so demographics don't work moreover here's the problem here's the thing about divisiveness the longer we continue to use this broken tool to look at the world around us and the people we're interacting with and the target audiences we want to engage the longer we're living in a world built on demographic stereotypes, that somehow millennials are like this and women are like that and rich people like this stuff and poor people are all about this. The longer we live in this world made of demographic stereotypes, the longer we are perpetuating ageism, sexism, racism, homophobia, all these demographically induced and fueled social 
problems that we're faced with right now are based on those stereotypes. So I'm getting to the answer here, I promise. How can we use values to unite us? Demographics don't work at work. They're messing up the world. All we have to do to be better at work and create a better world is just change the way we look at each other. If we stop using the old ways to look at each other, the way our ancestors did, and start using new ways that are about what makes us human, what we have in common, what we care about more than anything else, there's only 56 things. Think about it like keys on a piano keyboard. There's only 56 possible notes, and every human on earth will love some of the music that comes off that keyboard. Now, yeah, it's a little different. Some people like jazz, some people like classical, some people like rap, whatever. It's the same 56 keys that make all of us get up and dance every morning. Interesting. So how does one apply this in the recruitment process? Well, in any process, what the trick is, is you got to figure out what the people you're trying to engage with, what their shared values are. So there's three ways you can do this. The most expensive and accurate is to hire us, but that's not for everybody. <laughs> the second most expensive and widely available is uh, costs about $16 US, and that's to buy my last book. In there, there's a quiz, a 10-question quiz. And you can use that quiz and send it out to your people you're trying to understand and get them to answer. And it'll point you to one of 10 chapters in the book where we spill our guts about everything we know about that particular archetype. There's 10 archetypes in the, in the data. For now, now, I have to apologize to anybody who's listening outside of Canada and the United States. The first book that we put out with this quiz in it is only about the data from Canada and the United States because we didn't have the money to get the whole world done yet. So we used it as a way to create some revenue. The new book is coming out in first quarter, has a quiz in it that has 15 questions and allows you to do the same thing for the whole world. So anywhere in the world, use these 15 questions. It'll point you to one of 15 chapters that are the archetypes within the data set. Now, archetypes are massive tribes of similarity. It's not super accurate. It's like, go back to the piano analogy. What you're doing by using this quiz is you're banging your fists on that piano. You're not making pretty music. You're banging your fists on the piano, but at least you're banging your fists on the right instrument. You're not playing that broken old demographic cello over in the corner there that somebody threw away and is covered with dust and rightly is being ignored. The third way, this is a gift for everybody today. There's three questions. This is the free way. You don't even have to buy the book. If you just start asking the right questions every time you interact with your consumers, your customers, your prospects, and this could be in the form of a survey that you send out to your CR, through, your, through your CRM. It could be in the form of uh, training your frontline sales staff or the, the people who are um, talking to people on the phone when they call in with tech support issues, whatever. Find a way to ask these three questions that feels natural. The way I'm going to phrase them right now may not be the right words for you, but rephrase these so they work. And then listen intently to the answers. Amalgamate all those answers. And watch for the signals, the patterns. Those patterns that rise to the top, those signals and the noise, those will be the values of these people rising to the surface. And you'll be able to start seeing these patterns. Everybody you ask these questions of will answer them slightly differently using their own words. So you have to watch for this. 
and make sure you're seeing how they clump together and cluster and go, oh, they're part of this group or that group. So here's the three secret questions, three magic questions you can ask. The first one, why do you go to work every day? Get enough people to answer that question, you'll start to see why they're spending so much time working. The second question, why would you give away half of your lottery winnings? Not who or what, but why? And the third one, which is my favorite, is you get to write a letter to yourself from 10 years ago. What would you say to your 10 years ago self and why? So if you ask those three questions, instead of what we tend to do now when we send out a survey to our customers, yeah. is which we say, you know, are you male, are you female, you're rich, are you poor, how old are you, how many children do you have? Cool. Now let's talk about me. Do you like my product? How much do you like my product? Will you buy more of my product? Will you recommend my product to a friend? Are you happy with us? Oh, cool. And then we go, great. Now we know how people feel about us and who they are demographically. And what the hell are you supposed to do with that? Let's say you find... 78% of the respondents to your classic survey questions are female. Are you suddenly going to make everything pink? Honestly, what are you going to do with that? They're 18 to 24. Oh, better get some people with skateboards in our ads. Uh, <laughs> what? Age, income, marital status, gender, none of this stuff is relevant in a contemporary world where nobody acts their age anymore. Gender doesn't dictate what you get to well, do. Two, two of my very close contacts um, that I've developed over the last year are into skateboarding. One's 56 and the other one's in his very late 40s. I get the, the point. It's really fascinating that sometimes it makes sense to go in through the side door rather than the front door with your questions because they're very often far more telling. My favorite question, or it's one of my favorite questions in an interview is, uh, David, when is it okay to lie to a prospect? And I'm not really interested in your response. I'm interested in the speed and how you respond. The wording, I'm going to read read between the lines. Is that a question you're asking me? No, uh, no I, uh, if you want Because I'll, I'll answer. Yeah. I'll answer if you want me to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would never outright lie, but a little white lie might go something like this. We have clients call us all the time and go, we want to understand our millennial consumers. And what I'm saying to myself in my head is, oh my God, stop being so ageist. Age has nothing to do with it, but they're insistent. It's millennials we want to understand. Okay, cool. So our methodology, Mr. Prospect or Mrs. Prospect, uh, is going to tell you what the shared values are of all people of all ages. We just want the millennials. I'll go, okay, cool. That's what we'll do. And that's the lie. We always go and do our methodology the way we always do our methodology. And we come back and say, cool, here's what we found out about your millennial customers. And by the way, it's exactly the same as all the other ages. You don't have to limit yourself. <laughs> uh, so then they're like, oh, oh, there's boomers who like us? Kooky. Okay. Well, maybe we don't need to be so worried about millennials after all. So I will lie to a prospect if it's in their best interest. And the they're still getting what they want. They can't get their head around why it might not be what they need. So I give them both. Interesting. So given that we're coming to time, tell me this. You can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot David. Hmm. What one choice bit of advice would you give him that he'd have probably have ignored? Uh, I made a video a while ago that I put up on LinkedIn. I, it was titled... Uh, 
the biggest mistake I ever made. And it was an apology. I may as well repeat it now. I think you can never apologize too much. It was an apology to all the clients that I had for decades Mm -hmm. where I was advising them on how to accomplish their business objectives, their marketing strategies, uh, their, their goals based on some crazy notion that their target audience was men who are of a certain age and a certain income. And that somehow we were able to divine from that, like oracles, what these people were going to be motivated by, what would drive the decisions we were looking to, to instigate. But you know what? It's the best we knew. It's all anybody knew at the time. We didn't realize we were wasting 90% of our time and effort talking to a demographically and psychographically defined target audience. So I guess the biggest mistake I ever made and what I'd whisper into my ear was stop it, cut it out. There's something different that you need to be doing here. 90%, let's put this in context for a second, not just my clients, but every single industry out there that uses demographics and psychographics to describe a target audience to the point where they get the initial green light to go spend money based on that target audience description. So public relations, sales, communications, corporate communications, branding, digital, you name it. There's trillions of dollars a year are being spent based on these flawed ideas of what's gonna work. 90% of those trillions of dollars, the only reason they're achieving anything more than a 10% return on investment, which is what you'll get from a demographic description, is luck. They're spraying enough messages out to enough places that they're triggering some values in that 90% mass. We'll go back and end here with the beginning where my story about who were those 90% of those people in that room that I hadn't invited. Well, they showed up because I had inadvertently said some stuff to the 10% that they went, hey, that works for me too. And they showed up. So looking around that room, I didn't see the similarity, but today I do. Today I know it's not about their skin color or their gender or their marital status. It's about what they care about. Everyone in that room had a similarity thread running through them. I just couldn't see it. And therefore it wasn't real. Well, now it can be real. And this speaks to that autopilot blind spot, our assumptions. Assumptions are lethal, as is ambiguity. And your, your failure to communicate clearly what your intent is when you show up is really important as well. And um, so I, I see so many of these things. Then what I, I lump them all together as wicked problems. And I know this is a topic close to your heart. So let's just wrap up on how do we fix those seemingly unfixable problems that we're faced with as a species? Okay. This is the big, this is the, this is the money shot. The institutions that we as humans created on this planet to serve us hundreds and hundreds of years ago, things like democracy, religion, education, banking, finance, politics, those institutions haven't changed much. They'd be very recognizable today to someone from a thousand years ago. Here's the problem. Human beings have changed exponentially. What we care about today makes us unrecognizable to human beings from a thousand years ago. The gap between the world we live in that we created for ourselves all those millennia ago 
and who we are keeps getting wider and wider and wider because those institutions haven't caught up to who we are and what our reality is today. Now, if you talk to a psychologist, they'll tell you that the way to be happy is for your values and your reality to be aligned. You lie on the couch to try and figure out how, what it is you need to do in your life to get your values and your lived experience in line with each other. As a planet, we need to lie on a psychologist's couch and figure out how to get our reality aligned with who we really are today. Now, the first step, if we're going to do that, is we have to have some way to measure who we are today so that we can start to use that data to help these institutions called the real world catch up to us. If we don't have a way to accurately measure who we are today and communicate that amongst each other, that's not based on politics, that's not based on who's the loudest voice in the room, that's only based on truth and science and data, well, then we're doomed because that trajectory is going to hockey stick. We're going to continue to get more and more different than this lumbering set of institutions we've created that we live in today. Our real world will not change rapidly. So how do we fix this? We need to start understanding who we are as humans. And I think the reason... I don't think, I know the reason we are so focused on doing this in the business world is because I see organizations around the world. There's about 3 million publicly traded registered companies on the planet. And amongst them, they end up talking to, influencing, engaging pretty much everybody on earth. If we can get the business world to adopt value graphics, in addition to demographics and psychographics, we're going to start changing the way they look at everybody. And that's going to be a Trojan horse that'll get us all to start changing the way we look at each other. And if we all just change the way we look at the world, we can change the world. Interesting. Okay. So how can people get hold of you? Well, lots of different ways. Sending me presents is always a good idea. <laughs> Seriously, though, uh, valuegraphics.com and value graphics, just like demographics, just like psychographics. I have some people who've never heard the term before who keep telling me it sounds like infographics or cheap signage, value graphics. Like, no, it's neither of those. It's like demographics, psychographics, value graphics. So valuegraphics.com is the website. If you register there, we send you a newsletter intermittently, which is code for whenever I get around to it. So you will not be spammed with uh, a whole bunch of stuff. There's reports you can download on various sectors and various industries because we are constantly just publish, self-publishing stuff and pushing it out as a way to sort of prove what we're doing and show people what, what this is all about. So that's one way. Social media, I live on LinkedIn. I'm kind of, you know, I'll go over to Backyard Barbecue at Facebook every now and then, hang around on Instagram with a couple of buddies from time to time. But mostly I live on LinkedIn. So you just find me, David Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, on, on, on LinkedIn, or by typing on the word value graphics. Honestly, the easiest way to find me is go to Google, open up that little Google browser, and just type in value graphics, all one word, and I'm pretty hard to miss. And uh, love to connect. Wonderful. David, thank you. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Good. Honest, solid, thoughtful questions. Thank you for those. Much appreciated. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, then please get in touch with David or me 